I was halfway up, Henrik. I thought you were going to go again. <laughs> it's good to, uh, as you said, good to spend time with Jesus, to, be, to tell him that we love him. Uh, I'm reminded as we continue this sermon series this morning, Summer Stories, reminded that uh, the life of a Christian is not about uh, knowing all the answers or knowing all the information. If it was, uh, we could hand out tests, and once you got a sufficient grade, you could carry on with your life. The life of the Christian is about loving God and being loved by God, and so there is always room to grow more and deeper together and with our Lord. And so uh, today, we are continuing that Summer Stories series and continuing to look at the parables, the stories of Jesus. Stories are powerful things. Stories have the ability to evoke love and wonder in us. I believe it's uh, St. Anton d'Exupery who said, uh, if you want to teach, if you want to go to space, you don't need to hire a bunch of scientists and make a bunch of plans. You need to teach people to dream of the stars. That's what Jesus does in his parables. He doesn't always tell it straight. He doesn't always give us instructions, but he evokes in our hearts a longing and a love for God. And we're going to see that again this morning uh, with one very short story that Jesus tells, inviting us to build our lives on God. So I invite you to uh, follow along. The words will be on the screen behind me. Uh, We're going to read just a few verses from the end of Luke, Luke chapter 6, verses 46 through 49. Jesus is again uh, teaching his disciples. This is uh, at the end of uh, what Matthew calls the Sermon on the Mount. But uh, Luke here is, uh, in, in Luke, Jesus is teaching his disciples and he says to them, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and then don't do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they're like. They're like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. So when a flood came, the torrent struck that house, but could not shake it because it was well well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who builds a house on the ground without any foundation. The moment a torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. So far, the reading of God's Word. As we continue this series on parables, this is one that I've saved for later in our series because you know by now, if you've been listening to these sermons from Pastor Harrison and myself, you know that Jesus is sharing these these parables with his disciples. He's not just preaching them around to the crowds or anybody who will listen. And you know that Jesus' preaching is focused always on the kingdom of God, not primarily on himself. And you also heard in Pastor Harrison's sermon last week that Jesus invites all people to the kingdom of God, even though many people don't value God's invitation. They have priorities that they think are more important than God and his kingdom. And so with all of that in mind, this morning as we come to the, uh, these few verses in Luke, Jesus invites you and me to consider how are you building your life. Jesus gives two contrasting pictures when he asks, 
Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and then not do what I say? The answer is that either we have some excuse, so we're building without a foundation, that second example Jesus offers, or we recognize that Jesus is the Lord of our life, that is, we recognize that God is in charge of our whole life, and we allow him intentionally to direct more and more parts of our lives. I think it's pretty easy to say in general, God, you are Lord, or God, you are great, or God, I trust you. We even sang some words very similar to that this morning. But it's harder when it comes to the specific stuff of each and all of our lives. What specifically are you working on? What specifically are you building, to use Jesus' analogy? Imagine that you have a complex and difficult project that you're working on. It takes up much of your time. You wake up in the morning and it's on your mind before you go to bed at night. You're still thinking about it. You're distracted from your regular work or maybe your your job because it's all you can think about. Your heart is on this matter and it begins to take up more and more of your life. I said imagine, but I know as one of the pastors at River Park, that this is not a hypothetical. This is not imaginary for many of us. I know that many of us in our congregation carry around heavy burdens that fill our minds and our lives. For each individual of us, what that burden is, is different. Because each of us is different. Each of us has different, a different place in a community and in God's world and in our, in our own life. All of our lives, uh, well, I know, I know, likewise, that God has given each person in our congregation and in our world, He's given each person a task and a role. He's given us a purpose in His kingdom. All of our lives might well be characterized by these words from Kate Bowler that I saw this week. Life is beautiful. Life is so beautiful. Life is so hard. And so the most amazing thing to me about this parable that Jesus tells that I just read for you is that Jesus says, as for everybody who comes to me and hears my words and put them into practice, I will show you what they are like. Can you think of what a follower of Jesus is like? Can you think of what all the followers of Jesus are like? And then put it in a few short sentences. The NIV translation that Jesus comes up with that I just read is about 80 words in English. That's less time than most commercials. It took me about 30 seconds to read it. And so all of this week, I tried to come up with some simple way of describing a Christian and a follower of Jesus. But as I look around, even at our sanctuary this morning, I can't do it. All of you and all of us are so unique. All of us have different abilities, different callings from God. We have different struggles. We have different limits. We have different places where God has put us. Our church has made this beautiful decision to recognize these differences and to celebrate that God is at work, leading people from every culture and every way of life 
to follow Him. God is at work in ways and in places that I cannot see and cannot understand, that any one of us cannot see and cannot understand. It's amazing. And when we see God at work, when we do encounter God at work, it's the joy of Christians to, to wonder, to marvel at what God does. God's amazing gifts, His incredible provision for me, for us, for others. But we know, or we should know, that we, so often we do not see how or where God is at work. In the same way, you can't drive down the street and immediately see which house has a good foundation and which house has a bad foundation. You can't glance or know at a glance who is putting God's words into practice and who is just going through their life. You can't know whose heart is soft to God and who is carrying on with their own personal priorities. But God knows. God is at work in all kinds of ways that we cannot see. And so we must be eager to look for Him. We know that life is so beautiful. And we know that life is so hard. What I did come up with this week in preparation for this message was recognizing that most philosophies or even religions in our world try to encourage people to maximize the beauty and to avoid the hard stuff or the difficulty, to minimize that. That's the way Western culture works, for example. Try to be a good person. Try to fill your life with good things. On the other hand, don't be a bad person. Don't hang out with bad people. Don't tolerate difficult things. Try to get around them or pass them or avoid them or just create some distance between yourself and toxic people. Most philosophies and religions in our world take this approach. Maximize the good or the beautiful and, and avoid or minimize the bad or the difficult. But friends, it can't ultimately be done. None of us will go through life and be able successfully to avoid the bad or the difficulty and to focus only on the beauty and the good. Even if we try our hardest and even if it were possible for us not to make a mistake in doing that, we still live in a broken world. Things happen that are beyond our control or expectation. And this is why God doesn't do things that way. God doesn't call his people to try to, uh, try to only focus on the beautiful and avoid or, or go away from the bad. As a prime example, the songs we sang this morning about our love for Jesus. Our God is a God who, when our world fell into sin, God didn't write it off, ball, roll it up, ball it up, and chuck it away. He came down, made his dwelling among us. He lived with us. He works within, with us and within us to redeem us. And he will make us and this world beautiful once again. You see, God 
the God that Christians believe in, is the only one who promises to make meaning, to make joy, to make comfort and peace from both the beautiful things in our lives and the hard things, the difficult things. God is the only one who promises to make both meaning and joy and comfort and peace from both the beautiful things and the hard things. In a moment, I'm going to share with you a story about that. But before I do that, I want to just remind you one more time that of, of the parable that Jesus tells that there are always storms in life. Storms might pose challenges or disruptions to our plans. We can never find a path through life that avoids the storms and avoids all the challenges. And God doesn't give us false hope. Jesus when he tells this story, he doesn't tell a story about someone who builds a house to withstand a storm and then someone who builds a house in a nicer place where there aren't storms. God promises, Jesus pictures what it takes for us to withstand the storms that will be coming. God gives us a firm foundation to build on and to return to before, during, and after the storms of life. And so as you know, I've been, I have this, uh, share a video on YouTube every week uh, with a couple people who are watching and listening from our church. And uh, over the summer through the series, I've been sharing those. And so I want to just share a short video as well that uh, tells another story that I hope will help us better understand what Jesus has for us this morning. This week, I want to tell you a story that I have borrowed from Peter Rollins. It's a story called translating the word, and it's adapted from a Buddhist parable. It had been said many years ago that there lived a young and gifted woman called Sophia, who received a vision in which God spoke to her as a dear friend. In this conversation, God asked that Sophia dedicate her life to the task of translating and distributing the word of God throughout her country. Now at this time, the printing press had only recently been invented, and the only Bibles to be found were ones written in Latin and kept under lock and key within churches. Sophia was from a poor farming village in the outskirts of the city, and so the task seemed impossible. She would have to raise a vast sum of money to purchase the necessary printing equipment, to rent a building to house it in, and to hire scholars with the ability to translate the Latin verses into her country's common tongue. However, the impossibility of the task did not sway her in the least. After having received her vision, Sophia sold a few of items she possessed and left the village to live on the streets of the city, begging for money that was required and dedicating herself to any work that was available in order to help with the funds. Raising the money proved to be a long and difficult task. For while there was a few, there were a few who gave generously, most gave only little, if anything at all. In addition to this, living on the streets involved great personal suffering. But gradually, over the next 15 years, money began to accumulate. Shortly before the plans for the printing press could be set in motion, a dreadful flood devastated a nearby town, destroying many people's homes and livelihood. When the news reached Sophia, she gathered up what she had raised and spent it on food for the hungry, material to help build, rebuild lost homes, and basic provisions for the dispossessed. 
Eventually, the town began to recover from the natural disaster that had befallen it. And so Sophia left and returned to the city in order to start over again, all the while remembering the vision that God had planted deep in her heart. Many more years passed slowly, extracting their heavy toll on Sophia. But there were now many who had been touched by her love and dedication. And so, although people were poor, the money began to accumulate once again. However, after nine more years, disaster struck again. This time a plague descended upon the city, stealing the lives of thousands and leaving many children without family or support. By now, Sophia was very tired and very ill, yet without hesitation, she used the money that had been collected to buy medicines for the sick, homes for the orphan, and land where the dead could be buried safely. Never once did she forget the vision that God had imparted to her, but the severity of the plague required that she set this sacred call aside in order to help with the emergency. Only when the shadow of the plague had lifted did she once again take to the streets, driven by her desire to translate the word of God and distribute it among the people. Finally, shortly before her death, Sophia was able to gather together the money required for the printing press, the building, and the translators. Although she was by this time close to death, Sophia lived long enough to see the first Bibles dis printed and distributed. It's said to this day that Sophia had actually accomplished her task of translating and distributing the Word of God three times during her life, rather than simply once. The first two being more beautiful and radiant than the last. The parable, it's imagined, but it offers a beautiful example of what a Christian life can or might be like. All of us have different things that God calls us to. I am a minister. I never hope to be part of a church that's all ministers. There's not enough room on the stage. Some of us care for our families. Some of us work in business. Some of us are called to study or to be young and explore the world. God has different callings or different purposes for our lives at different times. God has a particular way in which he chooses to draw each person and all people to himself. But God speaks to all of us and God calls all people to dedicate our lives to him. The beauty, the difficulty of each person's life is different. But with Sophia's story, just one example, we can see the benefit of hindsight. We can see through her story that people are, that after her life, people credited her with three translations of the, of the Bible, not just one. No doubt if Sophia's story was your story, the moments, or the, the, the not the moments, the years of plague, the years of flood and rebuilding, those would be discouraging. They would be deep, deep hardships. But this story gives us the blessing of helping us to see how God makes meaning and joy and comfort and peace 
from both the beautiful and the hard things in just one person's life. Jesus, or returning to, the, to the, the real parable, the parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 6. <clears throat> if we don't do what Jesus says, he gives the picture that we're like uh, a house that's built on no foundation and when the storm comes, it's all destroyed. I would put it a slightly different way and say if we don't do what Jesus says, we're doomed to try to maximize beauty in our life and avoid hardship. I say that we're doomed to do that because if we really do that, if you really try to maximize the beautiful and the good things in your life and to avoid the hardship and difficult things in your life, you're essentially trying to control a complex and unexpected world that we all agree is impossible to control. It's a great illusion of our Western society that you can control your future. My wife and I are currently looking into some different options for savings or investments. And the first question is always, how much money do you need for a secure and happy retirement? How much money do you need for a secure and happy retirement? Unfortunately, there is no amount of money that can assure you of a secure and happy life. Markets change, situations change, real natural disasters, real storms occur, but all kinds of other storms as well. A loved one dies. You get an unexpected diagnosis. All the money in the world cannot change the realities of our broken world. Now, I'm not suggesting that it's bad or wrong to save your money or to plan for the future. Instead, what I'm saying is that we Christians, that God calls Christians to be wise enough that we are not slaves to the attempt to control our world, our lives, and the world around us. The more we have, and God has entrusted all of us with a lot, the more we need to check our own hearts and see what are we building on. Are we building on a, on a foundation or are we building a house where I've put every brick in place and managed every risk and I have it all together? Or am I building on a different foundation? I'm reminded of another short story. A number of years ago when I was a minister in Colorado, a university student came to me after church one day and he told me, it was a sermon on tithing, and he told me that he would start tithing after he made his first million dollars. It's, good. it's a good goal. Everybody wins, right? He gets a million dollars. God gets 100000 I guess. From what I can tell, this guy is a very good and gifted businessman, and he might well, even in the last five to seven years, made a million dollars. But in the meantime, he has put his hope in himself. If he does ever begin to give to God after that first million dollars, in the meantime, his heart is set on trusting himself, on building his life exactly as he sees fit, and looking to himself to provide for all the things that he needs. He's trying to control and order and manage the risk in his world so that he can avoid 
the painful and difficult things and have more beauty in his life. Brothers and sisters, will you wait for the future to put your hope in God too? Because Western culture is so task-oriented, so goal-oriented, where it's so easy to feel pressured to put off hope in God, to put off trust in God until some future date, until you make enough money or until uh, something happens in your family life or until you're in the next season or chapter of things and maybe just until you're not as busy as you are. We're always pressured to try to control a complex and unexpected world that we all agree is impossible to control. And if we're honest, that pressure to say, well, I'll trust in God later, it doesn't just come from our culture. It doesn't just come from the outside. That pressure to control comes from the sin within us and goes all the way down and all the way back to the beginning. It's not a new question, But people these days, many of us are weighed down by the question, what will I do with my life? What will I do with my life? What will I do with my present situation? We can spend a lot of time and energy trying to plan for our future. But for Christians, the beginning of that answer is always the same. When Christians ask or wonder, what should I do in the present? How should I plan for the future? We always begin by saying, well, I will begin and I will end by looking at God. I will begin and end by looking at Jesus. You see, Christians know, we know that God requires and expects something from each of us. We also know and understand that the complexities of our world, excuse me, And the realities of sin both mean that we are not effective and able to control our lives or to control our world. In other words, Christians know that we cannot put our hope in ourselves. We cannot put our trust in ourselves. We cannot make meaning and joy and comfort out of the beauty and out of the difficulty of our lives. And so we look to God. Because he not only promises that he will, but he has shown that he can and that he does. As people, just like Sophia, many of us at some point in our lives come up with a plan for our lives. Whether we consider God when we make our plans and we listen and we pray, or if we just make our plans on our own. At some point, many of us make a plan for our lives and then we put a lot of energy into trying to accomplish that goal. It's good to have a plan. It's good to have a goal. But we must always remember that these are our plans and our goals. We make our goals based on our limited view of ourselves and of our situation. We make our goals based on our gifts and on our situation based on our passions and those we know and love who have shaped us and who who care for us. We make our goals based on our cultural values, based on our upbringing. But God is not limited the way that each of us and all of us are. 
God is not limited by the present. God does not have a limited perspective of the world, and God is not waiting for the future. God's primary interest in his people is Jesus. It's the same as Jesus' primary interest. It's the kingdom of God coming now. God's primary interest is in the present. God's primary interest is not in the plans that you have or or the hope or, or goals that you have for the future. God's primary interest is in who you are now, who you are today. Again, to use Jesus' language, is your life built on the foundation of God or is it built on some other foundation right now? Christians can always look back to Scripture, to the Word of God, and to come to God in prayer and remember that there is a model for our life that is better than our own ideas about our lives. There is a central guiding principle of following the way of Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus. As a disciple or a follower of Jesus, we are always saying in every area of our life, Jesus' way is better than my way. The goal of the Christian life is not to get somewhere else later. It's to have more and more of my life aligned with God's will and the way of Jesus now. When we do that, when our goal is that God shape us and have his way in us now, then we can trust, and we must trust, that sooner and later, we will enjoy life with God in his kingdom. When you think about that thing that maybe keeps you up at night or that you wake up thinking about, is it something you're building based on your own personal preferences, your your own ideas, your own goals? If so, you'll never be able to rest. You'll be doomed to try to control your own life, your own situation, and maybe others too, for the rest of your life. In Canada and even in Calgary, we see all too often generational pain. We see kids who, uh, who feel pressured because, or feel pressured by their parents. We see parents who still want a better or a different life than their own parents had years before. In Canada and in Calgary, we see ethnic divisions between majority groups who don't want to give up control, while others feel pressured to assimilate, to be forced to fit into a group that doesn't fully know or respect them as partners or even sometimes as people. But God calls Christians, followers of Jesus, to be different. And here's what makes us different. And I think this is so beautiful. We might sometimes mistakenly think that Christians or a church is a group of social equals. We might mistakenly think that Christians are people who, well, we would be friends anyway, so we might as well go to church together. That's not the picture of followers of Jesus that Scripture gives us. Scripture gives us a picture of Christians as people who would be enemies, who would be strangers, except that we have all said, Jesus' way is better than my way. 
We are all building on the foundation of Christ. That's the one thing that all of us have in common. It's not our cultural uh, identity. It's not our stage in life. It's not who we're voting for. In a world where differences can seem so threatening, Christians are the only ones who can testify to the richness of the gospel and to the grace of God. That because of God, diverse people can all look like Jesus. When each in our own way and each in our own situation, we put Jesus' words into practice. When each in our own way and each in our own situation, we say, Jesus' way is better than my way. Here too, there as well, and also over there. We can spend a lifetime trying to experience and explore and experiment with how we might put Jesus' words into practice. We don't need to add any heavier burden on one another than that. How might we find joy and comfort in the way of Jesus? That's a better way than our own way. We can spend a lifetime trying to explore that question. The question of how do I love God and experience His love even more. So as we close this morning, I want for one final time to challenge you and encourage you to look again at that thing that you're building, that thing that you're working on, that thing that you're most concerned about. What does it look like to entrust this thing to God? How can you hear what Jesus is saying about what you are building, what you are working on? And how can you put His Word into practice in that area of your life that is so important? As I said earlier, sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that Jesus calls us to plan or or to be smart or to get all the answers right. But Jesus Jesus calls us to be wise, to be sure. But the first thing that Jesus calls us to do, and he calls us to do it in this parable again, is to listen to what God is saying and to respond. To listen to what God is saying and to put his words into practice. The life of faith is first one that requires regular steps of action. The life of faith is one that calls us to regular obedience. Obedience that we can't control, that we're not in charge of. The life of faith calls us to give our future and the outcomes of our situation to God. It invites us to be people of the present. As we put our hope in God for the future, we build in the present what God calls us to build. And we build in the way that God calls us to build. Put another way, we wait and we grow wise while we work on ourselves and on what God has for us. Always we hear in the back of our minds or our hearts Jesus' greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and strength and soul and to love your neighbor as yourself. As individuals, as a community, we exercise our love for God and for others. We do our best to listen to God and to do what he says. We do our best to listen to others and to serve and help and love them. 
And we can trust God with the results because he has gone before us. Because Jesus shows us what it is to love God with his whole heart, with all his strength, with his life, and also to love his neighbor as himself. As beneficiaries of God's love, as beneficiaries of the foundation that God has given, the strong foundation that God has given to each, each person and to all people, let's come to him in prayer and uh, thank him and dedicate ourselves to him again. Please pray with me. Father God, we all can say, I believe, we can all say that life is so beautiful and life is so hard. Lord, we know that there are some of us here that see that beauty overwhelmingly today. And so we say thank you and we praise you for, your, for the beauty in our lives. And we know that there are others of us that feel overwhelmingly the difficulty, the challenge, and the struggle of life today. And so, Lord, we look to you there as well for comfort, for hope, for joy. Not just for the future, but also for the present. Teach us to be people who always look to you who are eager to hear what you have to say about us and about our situation, and eager to put your words into action. Give us the wisdom to see the ways in which we have failed, the humility to confess our sins to you, and the trust to know that when we confess our sins, God, you are faithful and just. You forgive us our sins. You cleanse us from unrighteousness, that every, every morning your mercies are new. And so, God, we look to you, not just for the future, but also in this present moment, for the hope, for the comfort, for the joy, and for the love that we stand in need of. God, may, may your church be characterized as people who are not ourselves the hope of the world, but who know what it is to have hope because we know you, and we can always point to you. Continue, Lord, to lead us and guide us as individuals, as a church, as we follow your vision for us, your leading for us, as a community and as individuals. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.